Good morning, <clears throat> and many thanks for joining this In Conversation event with the eminent Australian composer Anne Boyd. Anne has very kindly given her time to discussing her life in music ahead of a performance of her string quartet number no. two, Play on the Water, which we performed later this year by the Kreutzer Quartet alongside a new work of my own as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme funded project, Pixelating the River. Uh, so a little bit about Anne Boyd. Professor Anne Boyd is one of Australia's most distinguished composers and music educators. Her undergraduate studies were in the Department of Music at the University of Sydney, where Peter Sculthorpe was her earliest and most influential composition teacher. The award of a Commonwealth scholarship enabled her to undertake a PhD in composition at the University of York, where her supervisors were Wilfred Mellers and Bernard Rands. In 1990, Boyd became the first Australian and the first woman to be appointed Professor of Music at the University of Sydney. Before this, she was the Foundation Head of Department of Music at the University of Hong Kong and taught at the University of Sussex. The hallmarks of her musical style are its transparency, gentleness and delicacy, attributes which reflect her long involvement with Asian traditions, especially those of Japan and Indonesia. Two solo CDs of her music uh, are Meditations on a Chinese Character and Crossing a Bridge of Dreams. Professor Boyd was honoured with an AM in the Order of Australia in 1996 an honorary doctorate from the University of York in 2003, the Distinguished Services to Australian Music Award at the APRA AMC Classical Music Awards in 2005, and the 2014 Sir Bernard Hines Award for Services to Music in Australia. So uh, as a means of introduction to Anne's music, I thought we might listen to uh, an excerpt from her choral piece, As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams. So um, just as a, a, a jumping off point, I just want to pick up one of the things that was in your biography, and that is one of the most defining features of your music throughout your whole career. Uh, and that is your connection with Asian culture in, in, in the music. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe speak a bit about how you first came into contact with these uh, Asian influences and, and how they started uh, creeping into your work and, and subsequently becoming one of the one of the defining features of it. Mm, thanks, Thomas. Yeah, well, I've always thought of Australia as Australasia. Mm. Um, it's situated as it is geographically, much closer to Asia than to Europe. And uh, in a way that influence had begun in my life much before I was conscious of it. As a small child, I grew up on a remote, very large outback sheep station. And uh, uh, um, one of the 
one of the features of the area in which I played as a child, down the down a mostly dry uh, creek bed, was an old Chinese garden. It was an old stonewall Chinese garden in which vegetables, which were probably or oh, 30 or 40 years wild, just self-seeded, grew. And my cousin and I, who was the same age, used to have some wonderful imaginative play, playful adventures around that garden. So mm. in a way, long before I became conscious of, uh, of Asia as a possible source of musical inspiration, mm. there was that play because of the connection between um, uh, the Chinese immigration in Australia and, of course, Australia itself in its geographical location. So history and geography coming together with my own childhood. And then when I went to the University of Sydney, um, I, I, hadn't, I, I hadn't had a really strong uh, cultural experience of Europe in any sense. Um, music, even musically, of course, a lot of the music I played was of European origin, but it, the Australian thing was much stronger, the, the impact of landscape. Um, and when I went to university and my lessons began with Peter Scholthorpe, who was a very close lifelong friend and mentor and teacher, uh, uh, he encouraged us to look to Australia as a source and to Asia as a source of inspiration rather than to Europe. And that kind of culture wars actually broke out in Sydney at that time between nice. the modernists who avowed European, mm. European characteristics uh, and, and influence uh, as being more international and, and in a way almost more objective, more befitting modernist ideals. And, and Peter, who said, no, 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 we should be looking to these wonderful ancient uh, cultures and civilizations of Asia as a source of inspiration. And it was really through Peter's teaching that I started to investigate in a serious sense the old traditions of, of Asian cultures, particularly of Japan. And it was because I was a flute player and I'm mm -hmm. a melodist, not a harmonist, because I'd never really had much piano uh, uh, study. Uh, so I thought about music as melody, as sound, first as timbre and, and the sort of sounds. And I remember my flute teacher, I was writing about this just the other day, my flute teacher put an enormous influence on producing a beautiful sound, a beautiful sound. So we would spend hours playing single notes and trying to make them into the most wonderful coloured, sounds that one could produce so I was naturally set up but I heard the to, to absorb the timbral aspects of Asian music because that is more important in Asian culture particularly in in, in repertories like the, the traditional shakuhachi Japanese bamboo flute uh, um, timbre is more important than than probably anything else so mm. so that I was just, just naturally, it was a natural, oh, I, I mean, it felt like it was my own music almost. I just um, sort of slipped into it. And then when I first heard um, Japanese gagaku, which is the court orchestra of Japan, I thought, wow, this is the, actually the music of the outback landscape of Australia and no other music I'd ever heard befitted that kind of vastness and austerity and vibrancy and spiritual strengths of landscape in the way this strange, strangely curious music mm -hmm. that I'm hearing from such an ancient culture. Much more so, I mean, I love medieval European music too, but it didn't have anything like the same relevance because there was no white civilization, so to speak, mm -hmm. that one could connect it to. Mm. And I suppose that, that that's very interesting, you, you know, you talk about it, the, the Asian influences representing your surroundings and your place um, at the time. And it must have been very interesting then going from Australia to the UK um, to do your, your PhD at York and, you know, spend time then subsequently as a lecturer at Sussex. Um, and, you know, how did, did you bring that sort of timbral philosophy with you in, in, the, in your studies and the music you were writing in the UK? Um, or, or, or was there some sort of shift, again, as a result of your surroundings and the place that, that you know, gave you a different sort of direction? Yes, yes, inevitably. Inevitably, there was a shift. And uh, it was, I mean, the first year I was at York, I, I was so, in such a degree of culture shock, I could hardly write at all. Um, mm. And 
I mean, I was, my antennae were sort of going in all directions and then being stifled because I couldn't really connect to some of the things that are around me, the old traditions, the medieval town of York, um, and the kind of, the the spiritual aspects of York itself. Um, I I, I love the moors because the moors, I could get out onto the moors and Mm. once again, the sense of uninterrupted landscape that was familiar to me, but everything was different. The light was so different. I remember being in York and really not seeing the sun for months on end and thinking, oh, no, <laughs> I, was so, <laughs> so I wanted to turn tail and head back to Australia. But of course, <laughs> what did, wasn't, I wasn't prepared to throw away a, a wonderful scholarship that yes. was going to give me an extraordinary opportunity to, to deepen and strengthen my work as a composer. But York was wonderful because York, under the very visionary, it's very visionary, Professor Wilfred Mellers, um, was he, he really encouraged to think of world music, not just European music, but world music. And I mean, he, he, he used to give some delightful lectures on this, the kind of uh, 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 origins of music, really. He'd talk about Eskimos breathing into each other's mouths and, yeah. and, and, and making peculiar sounds. And uh, he, so he was very excited by what he thought of very politically incorrect now as primitive music and use primitive music making so he was he and he also he'd been a great influence on my teacher peter scolthorpe my principal mm. teacher peter scolthorpe and he'd always encouraged he used to call peter your son man your son man <laughs> and, uh, uh, and of course so so wilk was was and, and peter had encouraged us always to be ourselves musically to find our own voice to find our own voice and to always give expression to ourselves, and that inevitably uh, reflected the place, the place that we we uh, related to. For me, that was always Australia. So even at York, when I was starting to learn um, about in, uh, European conventions and so on, it was still the Australian place that, um, that that grabbed me. And the main work I wrote early on in my early days at York was in fact based on Japanese gagaku, uh, that was very, very well received by, by, by Wilfred and, and Bernard Rands, who was my teacher then. And Bernard was a fabulous um, in, inspiration because Bernard had studied with Luciano Berio and um, he, he taught us a lot about uh, the Berio way of, of going about crafting uh, musical structures and sounds and the relationship between that and semiotics and linguistics and so on. And that fitted quite comfortably into the sorts of sounds I was beginning to create at the time and that grew out of, I suppose, essentially Asian traditions, Japan on the one hand and probably Bali as the other main Asian source mm. of inspiration on the other. So it wasn't, it, 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 I had to grow into myself. I had to find my voice and grow into it. And that's what York really helped me to do. So yes, of course, European, uh, uh, mod, European modernist uh, in, influences were impacting me a lot. But it was still the Australian voice that was my true, my true sense of home, if you like, and identity as a composer. Yeah, I think that that comes across uh, very clearly in your second quartet, uh, which we'll hear some excerpts of uh, a little bit later. Um, but I just was wanting to keep that uh, thread of place running. And, you know, you, you feel more, you say you've got your voice uh, by the time that you left York and then you went to Sussex where you wrote the second quartet. But then a bit later, you took up a position in Hong Kong. Now, this is perhaps, you know, a step in the other direction from going to the UK. You are now in Asia. You, you can sort of maybe absorb even more Asian culture and, and, and find a way to put that in the music, but then you've also got to balance the, this teaching position that you had. So I guess similar question to before, did, did being in Hong Kong have an impact on your musical language or even on your sort of teaching style in any way? Oh, of course. Um, I mean, I, I was able to have a lot to, lot to, to do with the Chinese orchestra in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Hong Kong was a wonderful melting uh, play, melting point mm-hmm. for East and West coming together because being a British territory still at the time, we didn't use the word colony then, it was always territory. Because in the years I was there, the decade I was there in the 1980s, Hong Kong was growing into a cultural force in its own right. 
And it was very exciting to be there as its own cultural institutions have been founded and to be able to play a part of that in, mm. to some extent because uh, I, I set up the music department at the University of Hong Kong. They wanted, it was an English-speaking university and they wanted a, a, a kind of English-oriented curriculum. So my, my curriculum there was largely based on the models that you would have found in uh, British universities, um, small, small music departments in British universities that, was, that fitted comfortably into humanities uh, studies. Uh, and that was the kind of department I was able to establish there. So, so Euro European music was still our, our main focus, but there was all this strong sense of the Chinese tradition, particularly um, welling up through what we're able to, to, to teach there. Uh, one of my most exciting appointments was a, a Hong Kong composer, Doming Lam, who had worked a lot with the Chinese Orchestra of Hong Kong and, and fashioned works that had a, a kind of, uh, oh, I wouldn't say Takamitsu-like strength, mm. but a, a strong Chinese color, yet were a notated work, a notated in a European score sense because remember mm -hmm. the score is still a contested thing uh, in China at the time they had their own way of notating music mm -hmm. so you know the, absolutely I mean to be right and then to learn some Chinese as well to learn to speak some Hong some some Cantonese and and read some characters and so on that was very very important because that took me more into Asian culture uh, into the heart of Asian culture in a way I'd never had that experience before yeah. And just, of course, having friends who were, I mean, a lot of my closest friends were Chinese people, yeah. but they were very westernized Chinese people because Hong Kong was a very westernized uh, uh, point of China. Um, mm. So when you say the, the Hong Kong department was very much modeled after, the, you know, the Western small music department. Um, mm. So did this mean that you got a chance to, you know, teach any courses or modules on, on Asian or world music uh, or was oh. it sorry yes mm -hmm. yeah or, or was that more um, you know because perhaps lots of smaller departments in for example the UK I know you mentioned that York had uh, some sort of lean towards the occasional ethnomusicology uh, work but was it something that they wanted to shy away from so it wasn't included in the curriculum or was it a bit more open and you know you got to people could explore whatever they, you know, liked? Uh, well, it was a basic curriculum in the sense that uh, um, these youngsters wanted, I mean, it, it needed to be, it needed to be a European-based, because it was a score-based curriculum mm -hmm. okay. in the 1980s. So, I mean, for example, one of my uh, dearest colleagues was Nicholas Cook, um, right. who, you know, as you know, became professor of music eventually at Cambridge. And Nick had just written his book um, on the on musical analysis, and we we sort of built a curriculum that was a very modern curriculum in that sense. But it was a very analytical. But it looked at uh, it looked at, at I would say European music as a model for something more, so that it was possible for students to take electives in uh, Chinese music or other Asian musics. But I wouldn't honestly say that it was a large part of our curriculum. Over the other side on the mainland, um, off, not on the island itself of Hong Kong, but on the mainland uh, over Kowloon, there was a Chinese university. And the Chinese university had a much stronger sense of teaching Chinese music. And so we had to be a little bit different. We had to, be, we had to offer something different and, and it tended to be, yes, it tended to be more European. Yes, that, that makes sense. Um, so just bridging back to your return uh, to Sydney University's professor um, links me onto um, the documentary Facing the Music, which I uh, watched this week. It was made in 2001 and it, it's something really unique. Um, it's, it's something that you never thought a documentary would be made about, basically the sort of internal politics of a music department. Um, mm. I don't know, it frames the sort of, it's a more wider, you know, thing about university uh, budgets and economics. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could, I don't know, maybe just talk a bit about the experience of the documentary, you know, what it was like to actually make it. Uh, and also just reflect um, also upon, you know, the, 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 the demands that were be made, being made of you at the time uh, and maybe how they changed, I guess, after, after the cameras 
uh, were turned off in in the years following that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was it was remarkable actually. Um, uh, the the actual year the documentary was shot was nineteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. the very last year of the previous millennium, and um, it was a time when economic rationalism was impacting Australian universities very strongly. There'd been lots of amalgamations of uh, higher educational institutions. And uh, so the TAFE, what we call TAFEs, which is a technical and further education colleges, were being turned into universities. And the conservatorium was um, picked on as, as uh, some, an institution that should merge with the University of Sydney. Well, I had become, I'd come back as professor of the academic department of music in the faculty of arts in the university and we had a completely different agenda to the conservatorium so uh, there was a lot of difficulty and the university didn't get it the university didn't Mm. understand why we could have two bachelor of music degrees with entirely different focuses and contents and uh, i mean we were research oriented and we wanted to uh, privilege research as a means of, of of teaching and learning in our small department, mm-hmm. but the conservatorium was executant. Uh, you know, was a, a place where people learned to play, uh, and in a way that that one learns to do things in a TAFE. And they didn't get us at all at first. So there was a lot of conflict and difficulty when I arrived in that post, and it didn't really. And that was oh, that was nine years before the documentary was shot. We survived but we were not encouraged by the university to make new appointments. And I inherited a a staff uh, of which many, many of whom were reaching retirement age and they weren't replaced. So I was being wound down or my department was being wound down. In the meantime, the conservatorium was breathing down our necks, so to speak, and still not understanding why we should uh, be different. The university decided the only way they could force this was really just to starve us out and the crisis a crisis came we used to our students studied uh, performance but they studied outside the department and uh, the lessons were funded independently by the university um, and they suddenly decided that they'd cut off that source of funding which meant that our students would no longer have their lessons funded and this was uh, this was the crisis that I inherited at the start of 1999. And that was when the documentary, mm. the documentary makers walked into my office. <laughs> well, the dean of the faculty then decided this would be outrageous. They couldn't possibly show the university in a bad light mm-hmm. and cutting off the funding. So the funding was instantly restored. And the <laughs> documentary makers said, oh no, oh no, how this documentary, how, you know, we want to have a conflict. This is suddenly our, the very reason for our documentary has disappeared. Well, they needn't have worried because of course there were plenty of other things happening in the course of that year mm. um, to do with, with funding cuts and staff retrenchments. And I, for the first time in my life, got in, you know, really heavily engaged with the union, the academic union, and we, we had protests and and we fought, and then, of course, really what the documentary we realised was about was the impact of economic rationalism. And that wasn't something that stopped the minute uh, the, a university policy was, was uh, changed. Mm-hmm. It was something that was ongoing. It was uh, you know, really had powerful momentum and no one had ever, no one had ever documented it in, in, in that way before. So it was a kind of pioneering study. And it was uh, after that year was over. Um, we were all amazed by how much had actually happened in the course of the year. Well, then there was a year of editing, which nothing much happened except I got terribly sick because I, I really the conflict got had got too much for me, and I had a bit of a breakdown and and kind of withdrew into myself for a while. And um, and then the documentary was released, um, and it it encouraged a wonderful donation to the department, oh. which gave the funds then to. to to, re- to set ourselves up in a much stronger position for five years. And, and so that was a wonderful outcome. And so the, the, it had a, this, what could have been a tragic story in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had, 
turned on a pivot of this wonderful documentary and we had new life uh, was was breathed into music and the pampas and, uh, and then there was a change of dean in the conservatorium and the new mm. dean was much more sympathetic and understood the difference between ourselves and themselves and, and we then started to talk in a mature way about how we might unite and eventually we did and it, it's been a pretty on the whole a pretty happy not completely happy, nothing ever is, but it's been a fairly productive and, and, and a, a, a good outcome. And I think students on the whole have benefited. So in lots of ways. So yeah, yeah. so that's the outcome. That's what flowed out, as it were, getting mm. back to the second string quartet. I was thinking today how much that line drawing of the play on the water by Paul Clay, mm -hmm. you look at that philosophically, it kind of tells the same story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's absolutely. and conflicts in the middle and all mm -hmm. sorts of messes and then out the other side. Although I like to think actually of that drawing as forces that are both flowing in from that side and then also from the other side and meeting in the middle. So yeah. it's more it's more cyclical and not a linear, not a linear study at all. And I think philosophically that's very interesting as well. Yes, yeah, so an idea of convergence rather than mm. just a sort of, yeah, one yeah. way, very interesting. And that's a nice bridge on to talking a little bit about the quartet that hopefully will, uh, you know, COVID permitting will be, be done later this year. Um, so, one, one of the interesting things I think about this piece written, um, I think in your first year as a lecturer at Sussex, if I'm right, um, yes. is to me this wonderful synthesis of what I would consider having, you know, being educated the way I am, this modernist extended technique with, with these, you know, very modal and, you know, harmonious, um, uh, you know, um, sound worlds and I think that it's very unique but I would assume you don't see it that way at all you don't see it as some sort of extended technique drawing on the tradition of what was happening in the 70s with people like Penderecki and you know all this sort of thing um, I'm assuming that it actually your sound world and the piece comes from a completely different place to that unless I'm mistaken uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I, I, my, my Penderecki was filtered through, again, Peter Skolsorp's, my teacher's Sun Music series, mm. um, and in which uh, his Sun Music, I think I'm right saying, I think it was 1968, I think, uh, Sun Music, the Sun Music, the first of the Sun Music, and then he wrote four. And, and that was, he was, he was, again, doing that sort of Penderecki thing of, of, no rhythm well no harmony there was rhythm but mm -hmm. no, no no melody no traditional harmony in any western sense um using lots of quarter tones and sound clusters and that sort of thing to it, but he again his his vision was different that was to create the sense of the desert of, of central mm -hmm. australia which was of course a seminal influence on my musical thinking as well um, uh, and so, so in a way, there was, there was. I wouldn't say that the Pendergretsky sound world was outside. Nothing ever is. I mean, I can even listening now with hindsight from what nearly fifty years later, I can hear elements of Bartok even in that yeah, piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I know, I would be absolutely dishonest to say that I hadn't studied and loved the Bartok string quartets and that they'd influenced the way I thought uh, mm -hmm. musically. In quite important ways um, early on, because again there was a folk strong folk source as you, you yes. and Bartok too was so intent on his own musical voice. But you see that the, the impact of modernism was uh, uh, originality. You know, you you had there was that's how it impacted me anyway. I, I felt. And the way I think we were taught, the way Peter encouraged us to think, you one must one must find one's individual voice, mm -hmm. and your individual voice is is a very complex thing. And everything that you've ever heard or been influenced by will be a constituent, and that you like and you relate, or you dislike and you don't relate to, eventually forms into what we can think of as as an individual composer voice. And I suppose that was what. I was bringing from the York experience because that wonderful opportunity that Wilf Mellors created through that degree for young composers to write music for three years as a DPhil uh, was an, 
a, a way of easy finding, finding oneself, finding one's voice. And that was what I bought to Sussex when I first arrived there in 1973. Uh, uh, it was still that business of finding one's voice, but finding one's voice through uh, purging, purging influence, trying to purge influence, trying to get inside the very heart of one's psyche and of one's almost unconscious mind. And that was stripping away, stripping away, meditating, taking, taking all everything away. And that was when I discovered the, the work of Paul Clay and I read some of his, uh, his pedagogical sketchbook was a very important source of, uh, for me, of learning, of learning. And that was something that, that uh, Bernard Rands, too, through Berriot, had encouraged us to think like that. Well, if you read a pedagogical ske sketchbook of Clay, I don't know if you ever have, and you... It's worth it's worth for a young composer. It's really worth reading, Tom, because it 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 it's really a composition. You can use that as a composition tract, and if you relate a lot of what he says to notation and at a deep level to thinking about musical form, musical structure, it's very very rich. And I that was another uh, force that was impacting me. So that when I came to write the uh, first the second string quartet, it all those forces were at work. So a lot of the notation in the work mm -hmm. is relates in fact to that wonderful line drawing that you so kindly found and put behind the picture of me for this um for this interview uh, if you you look at the way that that's structured and then you take a look at the score pages of the yeah. second you'll see there are very strong links and even in the the structural shapes of the outer movements they move into a central spiral just like in that screen and then move out on the other side but I never thought in a linear way I always thought in the cyclical way of moving to a central point of the center mm -hmm. and of course that was also a metaphor I suppose a musical metaphor for a kind of exploration of self and of consciousness mm. um, uh, and, and you could say well look it's kind of modernism in a way uh, but it's in the stripping away of of the preconceptions of of, of, of things that you've learned, you you you're you're taking things out. It's also very Asian. It's very much like the way the Japanese calligraphers work of eliminating everything that was unnecessary from their work, um, and so you're just left with essential shapes, essential form, essential sound, and that was what really was at the heart of that work, and that was that was what I was beginning to discover in 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 this this new phase of finding my voice in a way i think those years uh, the years of 1973 to 1976 which in, included works like Anklon. Mm. um well first as it leaves the bill for roger woodward that now that's an interesting part of the whole story but that that came straight after the second string quartet the second string quartet was a a, a kind of point of crisis musically, emotionally, uh, in all sorts of ways, and, and setting up this uh, department at Sussex and discovering amongst the students a string quartet. So, of mm -hmm. course, I wanted to write for them, yes. but I also wanted to write for them in a way that would encourage them to think in similar ways about their own musical selves, of their own way they could develop. And I was thrilled with the, how quickly those young musicians took to that way of thinking, and they actually did a jolly good uh, of the performance, which surprised me enormously because you know, they weren't highly skilled performers, but they just took to the work and they made it their own and gave a wonderful performance of it in Australia House um, uh, later that year, or in the middle of that year, I think it was in June or, or July, summer that year. Mm. So yeah, no, that was that was very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I think it'd be interesting now to just listen, We've got a couple of the movements, movement one and movement four uh, of the string quartet just to give uh, a sense of, of how varied the piece is within itself, and maybe to elucidate some of the ideas that you've just- Are you going to, did you say music, uh, movement four? Uh, movement one and movement four, the openings of both we've got. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, because it, it really they're, does- they're, they're, quite they're quite different. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the first, yes, the, 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 first, the, the first movement is, is, that, is that very much like the line drawing of clay. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth movement is, uh, reflects rice-pounding music to some extent that oh. I'd heard in Bali um, and, and that I related to children's games. But there's mm -hmm. another whole story related to that that I'm yeah. you're going to be, I'll better let you play the music, I think I'll stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> if you could uh, yeah. Yeah, hear that now, that'd be... <laughs> 
uh, is the fourth movement, uh, I think, coming next. So yes, very, very uh, contrasting, as you can hear. Um, mm. And I think just to maybe bridge us slightly um, out of uh, this, this little part of the discussion, at the end of the program note for the second quartet, um, you describe, hold on, I've got it here. Uh, you describe about your music as ritual rather than an expression. Mm. And this is something that, you know, you're right, this is from 1973. So. Um, I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a bit on that. I mean, I think that it's to an extent kind of clear when we think about the, the, the Asian influence, perhaps in a different function of music in different cultures, but I'm just wondering if you could elaborate even further, perhaps. Isn't it interesting? I mean, I was just, as you were speaking, and I was just thinking, I suppose it was all part of that purging process. I was mm. trying to purge emotion out of music out of my music I mean I am a very emotional person and I was trying to just purge that away so that the sounds themselves could be themselves in their own world and in that way uh, and it was a, for me it was quite a strong meditative process where I would meditate my way into the sounds into the sound world in which I was becoming engaged, but the sounds would lead me. I wouldn't lead the sounds. Mm. The sounds would lead me and they would begin to shape themselves in relation to each other. And it was that process of meditating. And so for me always, and it still is, unless I'm being silly um, uh, and just having a, you know, a bit of fun with being silly with music. I don't like to composing and actually being silly, but every now and then I do. I just let the side down to say, oh, I'll just have a bit of a with this, you know. But, um, but no, but for me, the real art of composing is when you take yourself into that space that is away from, in a way, away from self, uh, and it connects to a kind of universality. So it's like a form of prayer. It, mm. it's it's and, and that for me is part of the spiritual strength of music and of sound when you think about it you know sound in the indian sense um is the essence of the ancient indian vedas and so on uh, it's the essence of the universe you think of that you know the old om sound uh, from which all things come uh, and I, so that was a process it was a spiritual process so in that sense once you became engaged and let the sounds lead you rather than you lead the sounds, mm. then it is a, it's a journey away from self into a universe which in which much takes place. And, you know, listening to the, some of the opening of that uh, fourth movement particularly, I'd forgotten how bird-like it is. One could almost be in a, in a dense jungle somewhere. But then mm -hmm. I thought, well, equally, one could be somewhere out in the cosmos with a myriad of star shapes forming and shaping and misshaping in all sorts of ways, where the human consciousness is an intruder, but nevertheless, these things impact upon us. And that's really, I think, where that idea of ritual in my music comes from. At, at the way I play with the ideas, it's a kind of ritual play. You know, if you then go back and think in a Christian sense, the playing with the rosary, the rosary beads around and around and around the rosary you go uh, that's a very ancient medieval idea before of course the awful renaissance when we became linear and from <laughs> progress became the big thing and, and you know goal orientation and all mm -hmm. that 
because um, life was short and, and, and the human impact was, I suppose, much more limited. So, yeah, no, it, so in that sense, it's, it's a kind of, it's kind of a ritual, a ritual, yes. Yes, it, it's really interesting to me that, I mean, when, if, if we didn't have that, you know, great explanation you've just given and one sees, you know, music as ritual, it's funny to see a, a contemporaneous piece like Anklung which was written quite close to the second quartet, if I'm right, in the sort of yes. couple of years or so. I mean, that is, it seems to inhabit a completely different sort of sound world and atmosphere that really does ring true to that idea of almost meditation. Um, and I'm just wondering actually if we can, we can hear a, an excerpt of that uh, played by Roger Woodward, who I believe it was written for. It was. It was. <clears throat> It's just very interesting to compare the two pieces in both of them as being ritual, uh, where it's clear that it's something that can be very much on the surface and allude to a lot of those, this idea of repetition and focus and meditation, or it can be something that is more personal to you, this idea of stripping away and purging. Um, I think it's very, very interesting to compare the two. And, and it's, it's not so often, I can't think of, you know, huge examples, and I don't necessarily write like this myself, but to write such contrasting pieces in very close proximity. Um, and I'm just wondering what Anklung was written for, because I know that the, the string quartet was for a student quartet uh, at Sussex, but what was the commission from Roger for? Was it just a concert piece or? Uh, it, well, it, it grew out... It... It grew out of another work, um, which came straight after the second string quartet. I mean, just let's get the linear. Remember I talk about stripping things away. Well, in Ankhong, I almost reached the heart. It's, mm -hmm. it's, there's, it's, it's, it's oneness. It's a piece about oneness. Mm -hmm. And I've taken everything in essential. All the, you know, all the, all the busyness is gone. It's gone. Mm -hmm. And what, is, what can be more essential than the colour of an octave? The, and, and a very limited scale in which an octave travels around. It really is a very, if you take just a fragment of the second string quartet and slow it right down in time mm. and repeat it in endlessly, then you have Anklung. But it took me two years to get there. And the process was through another work. Straight after the second string quartet, Roger had been pestering me to write a piece for himself, two harps and five percussionists which he wanted to do in the opening season of the Sydney Opera House at the end of that year. Well, I'm not a pianist and I was very un I'm very uncomfortable writing to the piano. I never know how to do it. And, and I just couldn't write the piece. And eventually Roger got exasperated because bless him, he had faith that I would eventually turn something up for him. And he said, look, Anne, he said, I've programmed the work. You can't let me down now. And this was, I think a few couple of weeks before, 10 days before he was due to fly down to Sydney. Mm -hmm. He said, well, just write me one chord, just on an empty piece of paper, just write one chord, sign it, and I'll play it with all the love in the world. And I knew he meant it. So mm -hmm. I, I, I was then living in Brighton and I saw a half 
bottle, half-empty bottle, fortunately was maybe only a third full of scotch, sitting on the table of where I was living, grabbed the scotch bottle, dashed into the university, into my office, and shut myself in the room and said, right, I'm not coming out until I've written this piece. <laughs> so the scotch bottle and I eyed each other off and <laughs> I, I desisted. But anyway, I thought the only work, only instrument I had in the room was a little clavier, tiny little clavier chord, like the ones that, you know, and Bach used to have at the end of his bed. And I thought, well, that's not going to help. It's not a piano. But then suddenly, uh, it's, again, stripping things away, going into this uh, meditational space, I heard the sound of a gong, a deep gong, just one gong. And I thought, my goodness, that's the sound of the beginning of the universe. And that was, that set in motion. I had just blank sheets of paper and a ruling device. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen those mechanical rulers that Stravinsky used to use. Well, a friend of mine, Bill Collier, had had found one for me in Germany and had given it to me. And so I had this ruling stage device and and just an empty sketchbook, like clay might have had, you know, just an empty mm -hmm. sketchbook. So I started to draw my graphic sounds and symbols. And sure enough, one day and one night later, I emerged from my office and as it leaves, the bell was written. Mm. Phew. And so I sent it <laughs> off to Roger just in time for him to take on the plane. He was thrilled with it, absolutely delighted. And once more, it that uses some of the ideas, but stripping away from the second string quartet. And then the next piece, he loved that so much. He said, now I want a piece for solo piano. And I said, well, I'm going to have the same problem. He said, well, I've got the same solution. Just write one chord. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and again, once more, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And then I was sitting at my desk and I know I was living in Sussex. Uh, in, in, in outside and near Lewis, actually, in the in, in near East East Hoseye was the village I think I was living in at the time. And I went into my desk and I sat down. There was an open score of Debussy's uh, image, La Lune qui descend, that wonderful slow image. I don't remember the opening. It, it, mm. it, it, the second that something about that rising second grabbed my attention. I thought, right, here we go. And then I looked at some of the wonderful grace notes. And on the other side of the desk was, and it just happened, really just happened to be open at, um, at a piece of gagaku, etendaku uh, of the Japanese court. I have wonderful, some wonderful transcriptions of it. And it was those two things, between those two things, that the, the piece, Anklung, once more, it was written in the space of about four hours. Mm -hmm. uh, Anybody who listens to that, well, it just sounds like it. You know, there's not much in it, is there? <laughs> but but there was a huge amount behind it. And, and once more, Roger received the score with absolute delight and joy, mm. and we amended it. And he made it. He wanted it to be longer. The original version was a much shorter version yeah. of Unlock. He wanted it longer and he wanted the sections extended. And I was only too happy to do that because the piece was about oneness. It was about tuning. It wasn't about emotional expression. You either get it and you shift into the space and it takes you into an, into your own world of, 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 of knowing or unbe unbecomingness or whatever. Uh, and, and, and it was fine to lengthen it and to make it the octave sound on for longer. Um, and in yeah. the little procession at the end when they all trip out again. So, you know, that was, that was wonderful. But I, I have written pieces that are unklong-like, but I've never really written an unklong in the sense of it being the absolute centre in the way that piece was. And I doubt that I could ever do it again. So, yeah, it, 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 yeah I had to move move on and, and away from that eventually. Yes. And the piece moves out of that, of course, is the piece you started this, uh, this interview with uh, As I Crossed the Bridge of Dreams. Mm -hmm. And that was looking, in a sense, to the other side of the desk, to the Japanese crew score. Uh, that's a good place, I think, um, to move on to some questions, uh, if there are any. Let me just have a look. Um, so we've got one here, a uh, question from Caroline on YouTube. Uh, she says, Anne, I'm in awe of your achievements. As a flute player, I've performed your Goldfish in Summer Rain, and it speaks to so many people. What inspired you to change from performer to composer? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I just wasn't a good enough performer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also composition, love, I, loved, I loved composing. I always have composed from the time I was a tiny little girl, even though I didn't really know what I was doing much. I, I started off composing, writing graphic music, drawing music. 
as a small child in the outback, not really even knowing what I was doing, but I was enjoying what I was doing. And um, so at the competition had always been a strong force. Uh, I went on, I, I spent one year as a professional flautist playing with the Australian Ballet Orchestra. And to be honest, I didn't really enjoy the experience very much. Um, and I thought, oh, I did write some music while I was in the orchestra, but it didn't, didn't, didn't grab me. It didn't, it didn't feel like it was enough somehow. I went back to university and completed my honours year and, and then academic study became important as well. And there simply wasn't time to, I kept playing the flute, but it, it dropped into it wasn't anymore the foreground. It had been the foreground of my life and thought and, and love, and it always will be in some respects. Um, but it dropped back and there wasn't really time to, to go on practising. So uh, uh, um, academic work and and composing, particularly composing, became the priority, and it just wasn't possible to do both. Uh, we've actually, Caroline's just given a, a follow-up, but actually this is a nice bridge to something we were just talking about um, before this interview, uh, about your composition plans for the future, and I thought it would be interesting if you might talk a little bit about your upcoming opera, uh, which, you know, all things permitted, should be premiering in September this year. Oh, wonderful! Yes, well, COVID permitting, let's hope it was due mm. to be performed, of course, um, last year, last September, in the Desert Song Festival in Alice Springs, uh, you know, which again is a is a desert town in the heart of Australia, in the centre of Australia, and the work, the opera has uh, it centers around a, a character, a local character, a woman called Olive Pink, who was actually born in Tasmania and educated in, in, uh, in partly in Sydney, actually, at the University of Sydney in anthropology. But she went out and she worked, she was also a painter. Um, and I think in some ways her first love uh, was painting the desert wildflowers. And uh, in in the course of her life, she found herself in Alice Springs, working, working firstly with the Aranda people, and then later with the Walbury, uh, a neighbouring uh, community, Aboriginal, Aboriginal community. Um, and, and she set up this botanical garden, and we're going to do the, the opera in the garden where she lived. It's quite extraordinary, actually. We did a little preview year before last, and you could feel her ghostly presence in the garden at the time we performed. And this, the, the, one of the mainstays of the opera is this wonderful Aboriginal women's choir, a very, very strong group of women singers who come from numbers of communities around Alice Springs and in Alice Springs itself, but mainly from communities. So they come together. They've toured internationally and their mainstay of their repertory are, uh, well, on the one hand, uh, Lutheran chorales that the missionaries had brought out to Australia a couple of hundred years, uh, well, over a hundred years, probably not a couple of hundred years, but 130, 140 years prior. They still perform these regularly and they've made them their own. They sing them in their own languages, uh, either Arundur or, or uh, Pichindrada, um, uh, and those are the two main languages that they sing in. Um, and then on the other hand, the African freedom songs, because then the director, uh, um, Morris Stewart, is an African man who was who, who went to London, was a, 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 a minister, a priest in, uh, in London. Uh, where, and he's an extraordinary man, worked with bikey gangs and all sorts of, you know, sort of low socioeconomic groups repressed minorities and he found himself in Australia married to a painter, a woman who's a painter, Australian painter, and they found themselves now the springs, oh this is about a couple of decades ago, and they and he founded this choir. And so we're coming together in this work and we're going to do it in the uh, in the garden itself, in the open air, so the garden itself becomes a character. And for me it's wonderful because it brings together that extraordinary spirituality of landscape and of course the Aboriginal people and the myths and culture of the area bring all that to life. They, uh, they bring the landscape to life through their stories uh, in a very strong spiritual sense. And if you're privileged enough for them to share some of those stories with you, it's, it's, it's electrifying, it's quite extraordinary. So that's what I'm looking forward to uh, at the end of this year, hopefully, Tom. So, mm. Mm -hmm. um, one more uh, question here, which I suppose uh, we can ask sort of generally as well, it, and it's, do you still take on composition students? Uh, and if we could expand that to, do you still 
teach or have you now just moved into composing? Yeah, I, I never really liked teaching uh, much um, in, in the comp teaching competition because I think it's such an individual pursuit mm. um, that uh, I think you've, you sort of almost have to find your own way. I'm not sure how much you can be taught as composers. Yeah, you encouraged, yes, and mentored, yes. Mm. Uh, helped to understand the music that you love in a deeper sense, yes. Uh, helping you to see the, what you're actually creating on the page when perhaps you can't see it yourself. Yes, a more experienced musician can do that. But can you teach someone to be a composer? I don't think so. I think you're born a composer. You either are a composer or you're not a composer. And um, I, I'm not sure that any amount of teaching can really change that uh, in terms of one's, one's mantle, one's destiny, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, no, the answer to that is a very occasionally if a student will ask me to help and will actually bring some scores to my home, I'll be very happy to sit down and work with them. And I've done that several times since I've retired. But I don't take on composition in any teaching in any formal sense and certainly not in any financial sense because I just don't, it's too much a, it, it's, you know, how can you teach something that is spiritual? It's spiritual, you know, it's, it's how can you? I mean, gosh, Jesus threw out the money lenders from the temple. You can't do that. You can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I've got, well, I guess a follow up just from me. Uh, put the last question we'll have time for is uh, having, you just said, you know, how do you teach something spiritual? Well, if I were to ask you the question, how did you teach something spiritual for all those years? How did you, how did you approach something which you feel is quite intangible? always through putting the student and the student voice first. Okay. Um, trying to get them to find what was within themselves, what they, what they liked musically, what they didn't like musically. There was this process that I'd lived through myself. I suppose it was, of course, I indebted to my mentors, to people like, well, of course, Peter primarily, but also to Wilfred, to Bernard Rands, uh, uh, and to the many influences of some of the Asian musicians, uh, Takamitsu, Morton Feldman, Harrison Birdwistle, all people who had an important mentoring and influence and inspirational effect on my development as an artist. If I can help a young person by providing a little source of something like that, well, I'm very happy to do that. But essentially it's finding the voice within within oneself and encouraging it coming out. It's a very sensitive process mm. and it's a process where you open yourself to a great deal of potential hurt, um, but it's a process you have to be brave enough to, to go through. Uh, and, and, and if one is, has the courage, you will find the sound, you will find your sound and how you connect to all that is around you. At least that's what I feel. I think that's a really great place. Um, to just uh, bring this to a close. Um, but uh, there's actually just one quick question there, but this uh, ties in with when your quartet will be performed. Uh, we're just waiting for um, restrictions in the UK to ease, obviously, um, but it will be recorded and then live streamed at a later date. I can't really speculate when that will be um, because the situation in the UK is very, um, I guess, volatile. Um, but it should hopefully be in the first half of this year. That's my hope anyway. Um, and there'll be plenty of announcements that go along with it. But anyway, I just want to give a massive thank you. And this has been really, really interesting. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. It's been a delight, Tom. So thank you so much for allowing me the, that exploration of going back across, goodness me, half a, half a century of musical development. It's been a delightful experience. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. <clears throat>